Hey, Miles, you got a sec? Oh, hey, Rachel, welcome back. Thanks. So, look, I haven't really slept, so I don't really know if this is just me or if it's actually confusing in continuity, but I am having a lot of trouble wrapping my head around Storm's hammer. The one Loki makes. Yeah, so it's basically Mjolnir, right? Or a Mjolnir duplicate. Uh, Nah, not really. I mean, it is made of Uru metal, and it's got some of the same powers, but it doesn't have the worthiness enchantment, and there's some other stuff thrown in too. Okay, see, that's the thing I'm sticking on, because Thor's weather powers don't come from the hammer, do they? I mean, he's still the god of thunder and lightning without it. Sort of. I mean, Thor's got some powers of his own, especially when he controls the Odin Force now and then. But yeah, Mjolnir gives him a ton of superpowers that he doesn't have otherwise. Huh. I think he thought it was basically a focus for his existing powers, plus the returning magical weapon thing, and, you know, that he can throw it and fly. What does it actually give him that he doesn't have on his own? Okay, let's see. So, better weather control for starts, and like you said, it comes back to Thor when he throws or loses it, and he can fly by throwing it and holding on, which is the best method of flight for the record. And it's one of the most feasible. And it can do energy blasts, energy shields, energy detection, energy absorption, energy redirection, teleportation, molecular manipulation, personal transformation, atomization, mystic negation. It's got netherworld cosmic and electromagnetic power. It can make you invisible and intangible. It can show visions of the past and detect illusions, send a message across dimensions. It can resurrect the dead, control souls, absorb life force, annihilate the undead, and travel through freaking time. Okay, okay, wait a sec. Is this actually the list of the Hammer's powers, or are you just working your way through a player's handbook right now? Well, same difference, really. I mean, Thor doesn't distinguish between arcane and divine. He ain't no scrub. Okay, so how does that power relate to the worthiness thing? Like, let's say someone else lifts the Hammer. So Beta Ray Bill, obviously, or I know Cap has, or the current Thor, or like Inverted Loki, or like Superman did in that one crossover. So if they've lifted it, do they retain the powers as long as they're worthy after that, or just as long as they retain control of the Hammer? I assume the powers must go with the hammer, right? Because, I mean, Cap can't summon thunderstorms. So the powers are attached to the hammer itself, but the thing is Odin made new Uru metal hammers for a few super-worthy dudes who had wielded Mjolnir before. So Beta Ray Bill got Stormbreaker, Eric Masterson got Thunderstrike, and Red Norvell, uh, he was a documentary cameraman who died in Thor's place in Ragnarok, long story, got Crusher. And Simon Walterson, well, he did things a little differently. Whoa, 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 whoa. Simon Walterson. Did his superpowers by any chance involve spoonerisms? Oh my god, wait, wait, wait. Did he have an Uru metal spoon? Because that would be so awesome. I would be so into that. Nah, Simon Walterson was a football player who got turned into a frog by a gypsy curse, and then fought by Thor's side that one time that Thor got turned into a frog, too. Okay, I knew about Thor turning into a frog, but two Thor frogs just seems really improbable. Not really. After Thor left, Simon the Frog found a broken sliver of Thor's hammer, and when he lifted it, he became... Oh my god. Throg, the Frog of Thunder, wielder of the mighty Frog Yolnir. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edden, and finally back in the studio. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 48th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Rachel, welcome back. I missed you. It's good to have you back. Yeah, that was a long and terrible 10 days. <laughs> I believe it. Jeez. Thank you so much, by the way, for covering while I was gone. And I should say, too, thank you so much to Elizabeth for coming in and pinch hitting as backup co-host last episode. Yeah, totally. So last time, Elizabeth and I talked about the X-Men Alpha Flight miniseries, The Gift, which is what sort of sets up this story here, which is commonly called the Asgardian Wars. And guys, this is like one of my favorite comic book stories of all time. Yeah, this is like the perfect intersection of all of your interests, isn't it? It's got X-Men, it's got Asgard, it's ridiculous, it's incredibly over the top, and and it would be silly if I didn't love it so much. It can be both. Yeah, and uh, reading through this, man, I'd forgotten just how much this was my definitive so much stuff. I think I read this series a lot when I was a kid. Going through this, this is like a laundry list of the things that you described when you were first 
just telling me about, you know, what you loved about these comics. Let's really quickly establish the status quo first, because this is going to pull both of those sets of characters way out of their normal zones. I guess I'll start with the X-Men. So the members of the team right now are Nightcrawler, Colossus, Wolverine, Rogue, Shadowcat, and Rachel Summers. Now, we also have Cyclops back with the team again, for now, again. And uh, we also have Rachel Summers having just gained the powers of the Phoenix through the uh, Shi'ar memory orb that the Shi'ar gave to Jean Grey's parents after she died as Dark Phoenix on the moon. I believe, first of all, no one else on the X-Men knows she has the Phoenix powers, right? Oh, uh, right. That's kind of a new thing. Now, the other X-Men except Cyclops do know that she's Cyclops' alternate future daughter. She has not told Cyclops this. Awkward. Really quickly, because it's been a while since we've done this, let's do a really, really quick recap of real names and powers. So we've got Nightcrawler. It's Kurt Wagner. He can teleport. He's blue furry. Colossus Pyotr Rasputin. He can turn into organic steel, super strong. Wolverine is the best at what he does, and what he does is pop out adamantium claws and heal real fast. Rogue, who just goes by Rogue, she is super strong. She can fly. She got a sixth sense for danger. She absorbed all of this stuff from Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, along with a big chunk of her personality and memories, because her main mutant power is absorbing people's powers, memories, personalities, etc. through skin-to-skin touch. Shadowcat, Kitty Pride can phase. She can make herself intangible. Rachel Summers does not have a codename, although she's going to be going by Phoenix starting really soon. She's telepathic and telekinetic, the basic Jean Grey package. Cyclops, uh, Scott Summers, Optic Blasts, and he is currently married to Madeline Pryor, whom no one knows is a clone of Jean Grey. Right, and we covered a little bit of that in the cold open last time, and we're going to be covering a lot more of it, like, until the end of time on this show. Yeah, Madeline Pryor is kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Yep, now we also have uh, the New Mutants, of course. Now, this is all nine New Mutants from the main New Mutants era. Yes! So, going through the whole list like you just did, Rachel, there's Mirage, Danielle Moonstar. She can cause people's fears or desires to appear as illusions. She's also got some general psionic powers. Cannonball is Sam Guthrie, who can blast like a cannonball, and is nigh invulnerable while doing so. And is the most polite kid ever. Sunspot, who's Roberto DaCosta, he can go into sort of a sunspot form where he has super strength, he absorbs energy from the sun to do so. Wolfsbane is Rain Sinclair. She can transform into a wolf or to a transitional state in between. Magma is Amara Aquila. She's got, well, magma power. She can do, like, volcanoes and tremors and stuff. There's Magic Ilyana Rasputin, who's a demon sorceress who can also teleport by creating stepping discs that pull her through the realm of Limbo and out in space and time elsewhere. And really quickly, that's an important distinction because, like Rogue, she's got two different power sets. The teleportation is her mutant power. The other stuff is learned magic skills. And Cypher is Doug Ramsey, who can read, understand, speak, etc. any language. Warlock, he's an alien techno-organic shapeshifter guy who can absorb life force and talks funny and is awesome. And then we have, freshly returned from a many-year absence, Karma, Shan Koi Man, who can possess people. That is 17 main characters. Well, it is once we factor in Storm, who just got back from Life Death 2, and as we talked about a couple episodes ago, was hanging out with New Mutants and Cairo. Right, She's right. still with them at this point. Karma has just come back. She's been possessed by the Shadow King. Yeah, yeah. She was gone for a long time. The New Mutants found her running a criminal empire, substantially larger than she was before, since the Shadow King had been in control of her body and had been eating a great deal, I guess. She is freshly in control of her mind, but her body is the same as it was at that point. So, I've read X-Men Alpha Flight, but I obviously wasn't here last week. I haven't had a lot of chance to catch up on reading. Can you give me a quick recap of where we last left our heroes? In the wake of the Surt War, which is Asgard's war against the fire god Surtur. Oh my god, that's a terrible portmanteau. It really is, but that's what they call it. So, but it's you know, got the best sound effects. It absolutely does. Uh, Thor in general does. So Loki was trying to gain some favors from those who sit above in shadow, who are sort of these, like, the gods of the gods. 
the task he was given in order to gain their favor was to do the selfless good deed on Earth, and what he decided to do was to give everybody superpowers and create this utopia, the drawback of which was that it would kill all magical people on the planet. The X-Men ended up um, refusing along with Alpha Flight, and he tried to kill them, and it was foiled, and thus did not get the favor of the gods of the gods, and vowed vengeance, but he also was forced to vow to never directly harm them. Which, when you're the god of lies, is pretty simple to get around. Now, he's already had his vengeance on Alpha Flight at this point. As you would assume, the obvious way to do that would be to convince two members, North Star and Aurora, that they're really elves and need to come with you to Asgard. Oh man, that's hilarious. If you ever need to get revenge on anybody, I recommend the elf thing. It works every time. Now, more importantly, in Asgard itself, the Surt War having ended, part of how it ended was that Odin was killed. Odin was cast into a bottomless chasm and is, is no more, as near as anybody can tell. Again? So, things are pretty much in chaos in the Nine Realms, which are the various worlds, including Asgard, the Realm of the Gods, Midgard, which is Earth, and a bunch of others that compose the Norse mythological cosmology. Now, eventually, Baldur is going to be tricked into taking control, but for now, the question of who's going to be running Asgard is still up in the air. You'd think it would be Thor. What's he up to? Well, Thor is off. He sort of went to brood for a while after his father died, and he's uh, shortly, around the time of this story, going to be going on another mission to Hell itself. That's Hell with one L, mind you, the Norse one, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. We've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I think it's been a while. If you have not read Walter Simonson's run on Thor, you should do that, because it is some of the best comics, superhero or otherwise, of any era that you will see. You can literally deconstruct these and basically learn everything you need to know to be a really good comics writer. Now, as far as uh, creators, speaking of this two-parter, which consists of New Mutant Special Edition number one and Uncanny X-Men Annual number nine, it has a really stellar team. Specifically, it's written by Chris Claremont, no surprise there, but it's drawn by a guy named Arthur Adams. Arthur Adams would have made his debut not too long before this, I believe, with Longshot, right? Yeah, and in fact, I think Longshot's going on around the same time as this two-parter. So, you mentioned New Mutants Special Edition. What makes it a special edition? Yeah, so it was originally going to be New Mutants Annual number two, because we've already seen number one, where Lila Cheney first appears. But the story apparently outgrew what an annual was allowed to be, which is typically 48 pages. This one is 64 pages. So because of that, they called it a special edition. But effectively, yeah, it's an annual. Really, this whole thing kind of grew organically in a couple of ways, not just the page count that forced the renaming of this issue, but also the fact that the story really came into being when Chris Claremont finished the X-Men Alpha Flight mini and realized, you know, there's some more story to tell. I'm going to do some more stuff, and this is that stuff. It's always really strange reading anyone else writing as Guardian stuff during this era, because Claremont's voice comes through so much, and it just, it feels a little off. At the same time, though, I mean, the way he writes, you can tell he's been following Simonson's Thor and is really pulling in that gloriously purple prose. Well, and this is all of those guys working in, like, the same two offices, too, and, and creative teams overlapping pretty consistently and considerably. So, yeah, I guess with all of that background put into place, let's jump into what happens in this story. You mentioned that there had been this, the Surtur War. Surt War. S-U-R-T-W-A-R. Oh okay, so during that, Storm had gotten sort of involved in that, and in the process, she had done what Storm does, which is catch the eye of a villain. To clarify, the Surt War spilled over onto Midgard, which is to say Earth, and there were various demons going through New York, and a bunch of superheroes fought against them, including Storm, like in all of one panel in the Thor story in question, but still, Loki was watching. He decides that, well, she's this hero who's been depowered, and he is in a position to use her to get the throne of Asgard. And alongside that goal, to get revenge on the X-Men, who he's still mad at but can't attack directly. And she was not one of the X-Men involved in the Alpha Flight crossover, right? So she's not under that oath, is she? Yeah, she's sort of on the side of that oath, as are the New Mutants. 
Uh-oh. So uh, Loki summons up Amora the Enchantress, who's a longtime Thor villain, who's very sorceress and is kind of in love with Thor, and the fact that he's not interested in her makes her be a supervillain, because in the Silver Age, that's kind of how women were thought to work, apparently. So I always mix up the Enchantress and Lorelai. Like, I thought they were the same person for years. Well, they are related. I mean, quite literally, they're related. Lorelai is Amora's little sister. So Lorelai is sort of the more mischievous, petulant one. She's not considered to be as powerful or as wise as her older sister, the Enchantress, is. So sort of like Gem and Kimber. But with Asgardian magic. So she plays keyboards then. Yeah. So Amora goes to Earth, and Loki's like, yeah, you know, bring her back to me, and if you want to mess up the X-Men while you're at it, like, feel free, I can't do it, but it would be rad if you did. And she's like, well, I'd rather have Loki as an ally than an enemy, and I do like fucking shit up, so sure, I'll go for it. And they do already have color-coordinated outfits, so I feel like it's kind of destiny. Yeah, it cuts from here to the island of Kyranos. Now, you may remember that Storm took the New Mutants there saying, hey, we need to sort of, like, relax and recuperate. I know this rad place, let's go hang out there for a while. We can just be happy before diving back into the world. And so they've been hanging out there for a while, and we see our first of many pop culture cameos. Uh, Storm passes by a couple of characters who, if you're familiar, you will recognize as Remington Steele and Laura Holt from the Remington Steele TV show at the time. So yeah, Storm goes to check in on Karma to, you know, check in, make sure she's doing okay. And Karma is not in a good place. She's still incredibly depressed. She's pretty much suicidal at this point. It's interesting to see how Art Adams draws her, because we've seen Steve Lealoa draw her most recently, and he drew her as this very cartoony figure, and then Bill Sienkiewicz before that, who, well, he's Bill Sienkiewicz, so... She looked not even really human. Like, when Art Adams draws her, she's recognizable as karma, and she's got a believably human body, and it's a really distinct shift. It is. Now, I mean, we talked a little bit about the strange body politics of the arc where this happens with the Shadow King. Yeah, it's a weird thing, because the way it's actually handled in the text, and especially in this story. It's about the Shadow King having, you know, taken away Karma's agency, having forcibly changed her. What triggers a change back, what triggers her recovery, is reclamation of agency. It's not becoming thin again. But at the same time, it's a story element that I feel like is rooted so heavily and so uncomfortably in pretty intense fat phobia. It's definitely problematic, but I, I agree with what you said. I think in this story, given that the problematic story element is already there and has to be dealt with somehow, it's handled about as well as it could be. Yeah, I love the way it's used narratively. I just wish that they'd chosen something else. Exactly. I completely agree. So while this is going on, the New Mutants are hanging out on the beach. Amara is talking about how she's excited to visit actual Rome as opposed to fake Rome that she grew up in. Warlock is trying to figure out how gendered bathing suits work and having a great deal of confusion doing so. Yeah, the New Mutants have a number of beach parties, and they're pretty much always hilarious. They are, yeah. And as all this is going on, Danny grabs Rain, says, hey, come here with me, and conjures up images of all this stuff going on, like a big sea dragon attacks, and there's an avalanche, and the New Mutants, of course, rocket into battle, well, literally, in Cannonball's uh, sake, quickly realize it's an illusion, and she's like, hey, I know we're relaxing, but we have to keep on our toes all the time because this is a dangerous world in which we live. That's so Charles Xavier of her. Well, I, she learned it from the best, slash worst. I have really mixed feelings about that, because on one hand... They've given up at this point on claiming that the New Mutants are not being groomed as superheroes, right? Like, that is obviously what's going on. Well, in this scene, Bobby is sort of protesting, saying, we should just be allowed to be normal kids. I mean, I know weird stuff happens, but that's not who we are. We're not the X-Men. And Danny's like, no, you're just wrong. That's never going to be feasible. We're always going to have to deal with the stuff. We always have to be ready. Because our mentor is evil. So as all this is going on... Uh, lightning strikes Warlock, and uh, this portal opens, and these Asgardian warriors sort of pour out of the sky, 
and beat the hell out of the New Mutants and kidnap them all. Uh, they do the same to Storm. So I guess that does kind of prove Danny's point. Although the exercise with the sea serpent obviously didn't really prepare them adequately, so... Well, you know, if she'd been thinking, she would have had holographic evil Asgardian warriors. So, yeah, the characters all appear in Asgard. Now, Aurora appears near Loki himself, and he sort of entrances her and switches her to this Asgardian clothing using a spell. Okay, we need to talk about this outfit. I'm trying to think of adequate language to describe this. I would call it metal as hell. Yeah, she looks like she should be on a Man of War album. Yes. Well, I mean, if they allowed women who weren't just fawning at the feet of Man of War on the covers, then Do yes. Do they actually allow women on the covers at all? Like, the ones that I remember are all just dudes in bondage gear. Oh, yeah, there's some naked writhing women at the bottom. It's Man of War. That's kind of what they do. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. But anyway, yeah, so he puts her into a, this sort of crystal chrysalis and uh, starts enacting presumably an evil plot that we will, of course, see more of later. In the meantime, the New Mutants are teleported to Amora the Enchantress and her troll army. Ilyana's like, you know what, screw this, and tries to teleport them away. But this is the Enchantress. Like, it's right there in her name. She's good at magic. Ilyana hits this sort of binding spell that's built into the Enchantress's lair, her castle, and the New Mutants are scattered throughout space and time. This is the moment for me when this started to feel really high stakes, because we've seen time and time again how tremendously powerful Ilyana is. Amora takes her out with almost no effort, and it really drives home that these aren't supervillains they're up against. These are actual gods. Right, like straight up divine beings, totally. Ilyana herself actually remains there. She basically bounces off the wall as the rest of the New Mutants go through. And what the story does from here throughout much of New Mutant Special Edition number one is it sort of cycles through all nine characters, going through them, I think, three times before the stories start to merge together. Now, we're going to go ahead and keep that a little bit simpler and just talk about each character in turn once, but just be aware that it's cutting back and forth and back and forth and back and forth like a TV show or something. So you mentioned Ilyana stays there. Let's start with her. Yeah, the Enchantress binds her to the wall using these sort of demon arms that sap her strength. It kind of reminded me of those demon arms that uh, grab Dana when she's on the couch in Ghostbusters. Yes. As she's doing this, she's sort of displaying her power, and one of the things she does is de-ages and then attempts to re-age her, and you know, Claremont kind of does that sort of thing a lot. But she doesn't age, does she? Well, she gets de-aged, but Amora can't sort of age her into cronehood, as she would probably call it in Asgard, because she's really powerful, and she's she's impressed, and she says about Ilyana, hey, you know, maybe you're as wicked as me. And ultimately what she does is she pulls out the Dark Child persona. Now, we've seen this before. But not with armor this sweet. Yes, yes. Uh, The Dark Child persona in Asgardian armor, it's like two great tastes that taste great together. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's the only version of the Dark Child that I really remember seeing that's not particularly sexualized. Basically what it is, is it's all of Liana's evil, the evil part of her soul, with all of her mystical abilities tied to it. And the, quote, real Ilyana, the part that's left over, is just chained slash armed to the wall in the Enchantress's castle. We should say Ilyana and her demon realm and magic are going to be figuring pretty heavily into this. If you haven't either read the Magic miniseries or listened to the episode about it, you might want to do that, just because we're going to be referencing those things a lot this episode. So, yeah, she sends this dark child out to track down the remaining new mutants to bring them back so she can continue Loki's evil plot. And one of the things she does is she says that the Dark Child basically will be invincible. Any wound that hits the Dark Child will actually transfer immediately to Ilyana herself. So it's like the portrait of Dorian Gray, but mean. It's the Viking sorceress demon portrait of Dorian Gray in Asgard. So yeah, that's basically Ilyana, and what we'll see uh, of her for a lot of the next part is just this Dark Child persona being sort of the boogeyman going after everybody else. Next, we've got Karma. Karma has basically been teleported to Arrakis. Kind of. It's this giant trackless desert. And her first thought is she's just going to give up and let herself die. Yeah, she doesn't see any way she could possibly get through it. But what she does eventually see is a little girl who's about to be killed by a sand dragon and decides that she can't sit by passively while this happens. 
So she possesses the dragon, gets it away from the kid. The kid attaches herself to Karma and Karma says, okay, well, at this point, it would be wildly socially irresponsible for me to let myself die because then this kid will die too, so might as well live. Karma, we should remind everyone, uh, she's an elder sibling. She has two younger siblings that she's gone through a lot to take care of. So this is really, I think, playing on that part of her. She spends months in the desert with this girl trying to protect her. In the process, gradually physically returns to her original self. Next is Cypher, Doug Ramsey. Now, Cypher, as almost every issue of New Mutants reminds us at this point, does not have physical powers. His powers are purely mental, which you wouldn't think would be a problem, but I guess in a comic where you're getting in fights every 10 seconds, it sort of is. Okay, this pisses me off because there's actually a moment in this New Mutants special where Mirage yells at him for getting in a fight when he doesn't have physical powers, and she doesn't either. It's true. Her powers are totally psychological. All of her physical abilities are things that she's trained at. Like, she's badass, and she's better in a fight than he is, but that's because she's she's a hella scrappy kid. So, yeah, the world continues to be unfair to Cypher, and he actually finds himself in an Asgardian mead hall. Yeah, and I was gonna say, Viking-based worlds aren't really great for people whose powers are basically translation, which is weird, because you'd think Vikings would need translators, what with all the marauding and such. Well, if he could find, like, a scald or a scholar or something, he'd probably do better. But that's not what he he finds what he finds is Popeye, Bluto, and olive oil. Okay. Like, seriously, the, the Vikings that he runs into are very clearly based off of those characters. He quickly gets in a fight with the Bluto Viking who's picking on him, and it becomes pretty clear he's outmatched, and so they send Olive Oil, who's like the serving maid, to fight him with a sword, and he can't even lift well, the sword. Well, she's got a mop, and he's got a sword he can't oh, even yeah, yeah, yeah. lift. And uh, so they're like, ah, this, this little boy is ridiculous, and they clap him in a metal collar and basically use him as a, a servant from there. And that's the way it goes for a while, with him just being shat on by these Vikings, until the Dark Child and her Night Gaunt army show up. Uh, He's the first one that they try to reclaim. They kill everyone. Doug eventually escapes with the aid of Warlock, who we'll get to in just a moment. But first, Wolfsbane and her brand new boyfriend. Yes, indeed. This is so adorable. They have a kid later, and he becomes the King of Hell, and it's really awkward. But for now, it's pretty cute. Wolfsbane ends up in, in a wooded area, and she runs into a hunting party of giants. They speak so distinctively. I feel like they have to be references to something, but it's nothing I'm picking up on. Okay, so uh, one of them I'm pretty sure is just supposed to be Fred Flintstone based on appearance, but uh, the one I'm sure of is this one who has this like big spiky spire of hair in the front of his head and keeps saying, I must say. And yeah, he's based on a character from uh, SCTV and Saturday Night Live called Ed Grimley, who I first became aware of through the many Mystery Science Theater references. So Rain's like, oh crap, I'm gonna get gianted to death. But fortunately, the wolf whom they are hunting is a clever wolf who manages to defeat them in clever and slapstick ways, and then Hella flirts with Rain. It turns out that he is a prince of wolves. He's got a name, although I don't believe we actually learn it in this crossover. Yeah, his name we find out later is, I believe, Hrimhari, but yeah, he's just the wolf prince in this, and we also learn that he can turn into a human-wolf hybrid form like Rain can, except he's silver and, you know, male. Yeah, which is sort of the form that Rain tends to default to, given her druthers. And so Rain's freaking out because she's very attracted to this wolf prince, and she's like, well, crap, I mean, I'm a human girl, and also I was raised uh, in this really oppressive, super-religious environment, so attraction and love are, like, not okay things, and uh, I guess I must be sinning by doing any of this, but this feels so right. There's hella nuzzling. Furry necking. <laughs> and so, yeah, she's uh, she's really concerned. She's just very conflicted. And th- this is a conflict we've seen in Rain a lot for the last many issues of New Mutants, and here it's really just coming on more in, in a more literal, embodied fashion than usual. What we have rarely seen 
is what she actually wants winning out, which it does here. Yeah, she uh, she runs away after the wolf prince says basically share my life and share my love and just like be with me. That sounds incredibly power ballady, which actually kind of brings me to something I want to talk about about um, Marvel Asgard because we haven't really gone here yet. Listeners, if you're not familiar with Marvel Asgard, but you are familiar with, for example, traditional Norse mythology, what you're picturing may be somewhat different from what we're describing. Asgard, as shown in Marvel, is basically the equivalent of what I like to refer to as Renfair metal, which is about, like, trolls and dragons and friendship and and soaring vocals and mealy-me guitars. Like, if you listen to, say, a bunch of Dragon Force and a bunch of Ailstorm, you'll get a pretty good idea of what Marvel Asgard is like. It's really kind of ridiculous. Everyone talks in this sort of Shakespearean English for no discernible reason. Now, they did stop doing that more recently in Marvel, but at this point, it's all these and thous as far as the eye can see. I sort of think of Marvel Asgard as being to Norse mythology as like D&D is to medieval England. That's actually a pretty good parallel, yeah. So Rain goes to find her friends and is very quickly captured by the Dark Child and ensorcelled into this uh, this sort of demonic armor as her servitor. Which brings us to my very favorite new mutant, Warlock. And Warlock is in Hell. And again, that's Hell with one L, not Hell with two Ls. Hell with one L is the realm of Hela, the goddess of the dead. This Hell is where you go if you die dishonorably or you die, like, not in combat, basically. It's mostly just kind of endemic misery. It's not, like, punishy Hell, it's just sort of unpleasant. It's, it's just Dreeryheim, basically. Yeah, yeah. So this is where Warlock ends up, and he is running really low on energy. Remember, he has to absorb life energy, basically, and he, he absorbs a dragon somewhat guiltily because he's about to die. And determines that he needs some luck. Locating his friends is going to be a real long shot, and he can shapeshift, and he turns into long shot at this point, which is weird because I don't think he'd actually have met him. No, he hasn't, and he says, Query, is this humor? Yeah, it's basically just an inside joke. Like, this book is really Viking epic, but it's also really silly in places. He eventually runs into Hela, who is a beautifully designed character, for the record. Oh, yeah. I mean, Asgardian fashion, we talked a little bit about it last episode. It's very, very very heavily and very clearly Kirby-influenced, but once Simonson's on, it also becomes more sort of filigreed and fluid. And Art Adams is really pulling from that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Art Adams actually also draws a really cool warlock. He does. He's sort of in between Sienkiewicz's version and Leia Loa's version, you know? He's a little bit more realistic than Sienkiewicz, but a little bit less amorphous than Leia Loa. Well, he's more humanoid than he defaults to with either of those artists, but he's got a great chaotic intricacy that I don't think we've really ever seen him with before, and fantastic facial expressions. Totally. But yeah, so he's in hell, and all of a sudden... Query, where is self? This be hell, the dwelling place of those who die dishonorable or cowardly deaths, who lack the courage and merit to win for themselves a place in Valhalla. Which, then, art thou? Coward. What better proof could self provide than by fleeing to seek self's friends? And he turns into a rocket and flies off, and it's a lovely moment, and it's, I think, a very, very warlock moment, because he is a character whose priorities pretty much always start and end with compassion. Absolutely. And so he heads off. Now, uh, for characters who have different priorities, we turn to Sunspot. Now, he's ended up in Asgard itself, in this tavern, and he's dressed in as guardian finery, and we come in on him uh, arm-wrestling a dude named Vigdal. And eventually, he wins the match by going into Sunspot form and using his powers. And as far as we can tell, this has been going on for a while. Like, he's been arm-wrestling his way through the pub. So there are all these women watching, and they're all very impressed, and Sunspot is just eating up the attention. He loves this shit. So uh, Vigdal's getting all annoyed at being beaten, so he, uh, I guess to take out his aggression, starts being a total skeezy douchebag and uh, hitting on women in really aggressive ways. And so Sunspot knocks him through two walls. Because Sunspot is an upstanding young fellow, and at this point... 
three newcomers appear who've heard tell of this exceptionally strong youth who've shown up decide that it's time to see if he wants to test his mettle against the Warriors Three. Yeah, now the Warriors Three, if you're not familiar with Thor, uh, they are wonderful. They are Fandral the Dashing, Hogan the Grim, and Volstag the Voluminous, or the Valiant, depending on who you The ask. Lion of Asgard. The Lion of Asgard. I actually want to be friends with all of these guys. Oh, they're great. But yeah, so they burst in and Volstag is just like, Innkeeper, bring forth food and drink fit to delight the palate and quench the thirst of Asgard's noblest sons. Word hath reached us of a gnat thou hast in thine employ, possessed tis said of a strength to rival Thor's. Bobby manages to prove himself by lifting Volstag, which is no mean feat. Volstag is suitably impressed, like this is all it takes, and says, I shall take thee in hands, Nat, and show thee the wonders and pleasures of this fair city as only Volstag can. Truly, this shall be a night to remember. As Sunspot is like clutching his back and just going, ow, 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 ow. And Bobby is totally into this. He's totally into Asgard because it's a place where he gets to be awesome and he gets to be lauded and he gets all the girls. And yeah, there are fights, but you know, he's not hated and feared. He's celebrated. It's so cool. And he's just going to stay here forever. And then the Dark Child shows up and possesses him. So. Yeah, sucks him into that mystical armor. So him and Rain are now in her collection at this point. Now, after this, we see just a little bit of Magma. Now, she doesn't get very much story of her own. She is, I'm assuming, in Svartalfheim, Realm of the Dark Elves, based on what happens. But yeah, there are all these sort of little fairy people, and they offer her food and drink before saying that they'll help her search for her friends. And she gladly eats and drinks and then Oh, falls come over. on, Magma. This is kind of rule number one of dealing with fairies, is don't eat their food or drink their wine. It's not going to work out well for you. Right, and you said you, you thought maybe she hadn't been exposed to those fairy tales growing up in Nova Roma, but we find out at the beginning of the X-Men annual number nine that she totally has. So there is just no excuse excuse for this nonsense. Right. What we see is as she passes out, all the cute little fairies all of a sudden turn into much less cute fair folk who readers of Thor will identify as dark elves. Now, we'll see her again shortly uh, when we cut to Cannonball. Cannonball has ended up lost in the caves of what I am going to sound out as being pronounced Nidavalir, but am probably mispronouncing, so sorry about that. And this is the realm of the dwarves. Yeah, so we have dark elves, we have dwarves, we have giants. Basically, Norse mythology is where D&D and J.R.R. Tolkien got all their stuff. And Cannonball almost immediately rescues a woman who turns out to be the wife of the dwarven chieftain. Yeah, who's a guy named Itri. She is being attacked by some trolls. He saves her, but he's stabbed and collapses. This whole time, by the way, he is wearing cut-off jeans, which I gotta say looks wonderfully out of place in Nidavellir. Then later on, the, the dwarves do what I guess at this point is common practice for any subterranean peoples. It, it's to basically just strip him down. Oh, they probably don't have any leather pants that would fit him. Uh, I don't know. Like, it would probably be dragon leather or something. I'm guessing it's harder well, to Well, he's come much by. taller than any of them. Oh, that too. But yeah, so he recovers in Itri's home and is nursed back to health by Itri's daughter, Kindra, who clearly has the hots for Sam, calling him noble paladin and stuff. And for the record, her opinions are correct. Yes, Sam is a delightful boy, and any parent should be proud of their daughter dating him. And uh, Sam and Itri talk, and Itri's explaining that the Dark Elves, with Odin out of the way, are trying to threaten the dwarves into making them these like big realm-conquering weapons, because, you know, that's what dwarves do. They make stuff. And sure enough, at this point, the Dark Elves attack, but they're led by Magma, but not Magma as we've seen her before. Right. This Magma has been basically turned into an elf. She's a fire elf now. She's got, you know, long pointy ears. Her features are starting to change. She's becoming smaller. She is, is now vulnerable to cold iron. And so there's a big fight. Itri ends up taking Magma out with a dwarven fire extinguisher, which, which is awesome. Which basically looks like a very ornate human fire extinguisher. But with dwarf runes on it. So Sam does help Itri and the dwarves turn back the attacking Dark Elves, um, and Magma stays there. The Dark Elves aren't able to retrieve her. 
Magma recognizes Sam ultimately, and she starts to sort of regain some control, but she's still basically an elf, and she's starting to feel less and less in touch with her old self. Right. She's worried that, you know, she's never really going to be able to turn back to human. She's never going to be able to go back home. Like, this is just going to be her fate from now on, being all elfy. This remains unresolved because a new pair of visitors show up. Loki offered, he's basically told Storm, you've had your powers stripped away. You're clearly a badass. This realm is in disarray. Help me restore order to it. Take my brother's place. Become the goddess of thunder. Although for some damn reason at this point, he has turned her into a hawk. Not only has he turned her into a hawk, he's turned her into a hawk with a tiny white mohawk. It's a hawk hawk. It's adorable, but it's kind of baffling. And so, yeah, Loki says to Itri, hey, so we need a new hammer for this Thunder God. You made Mjolnir before, and you made Stormbreaker, so make me one for Aurora Monroe. Yeah, you want to make me hook my lady friend up? And Itri's like, um, you're the God of Lies and I don't like you, and Loki says basically, well, it would be a shame if something happened to your little friend here and threatens Cannonball. No, no, you're your big friend here. You're big friend here. But Loki does successfully threaten Itri enough for Itri to agree that, yes, he will make a Mystic Uru metal hammer for Storm. And Sam also recognizes the falcon as storm it's all kind of amazing everything is amazing that's right bird transformation reminds me of something that i should have covered way back at the beginning of this issue it's not continuity so it doesn't actually matter that i'm talking about it here but i think it would be a shame to not talk about it and that is specifically the title each part of this story has a different title one is the first is home is where the heart is and the second is it's there's no place like home and the second should be a giveaway, but on both of them, the title design is a very direct homage to John Arneil's work on the original Oz books. If you're familiar with those, it's going to be immediately recognizable, and it's really cool. It's pretty rad, yeah. So anyway, next we move on to Daniel Moonstar, Mirage, and this is one of the more strange and interesting things to happen in and come out of the story. And it's going to be one of the ones that has the longest running repercussions, honestly, even stretching into the present day. Yeah, Mirage uh, finds herself on these these planes and sees in the distance a horse, a pegasus actually, in trouble. It's sort of sinking into a bog covered in these barbed ropes, and so she goes to free it. Just as she does successfully free it, these horsemen appear to finish it off. Clearly, they've been hunting it for some reason, and she manages to conjure this image of Hela to scare them off. As she's doing so, another Pegasus rider, who's a young woman named Mist, appears to give her a hand, and she seems very surprised that this horse is hanging out with a woman who's clearly from Midgard, from Earth. How does she figure out the horse's name? Does Denny name it, or does she just figure it out? Because she's starting to develop sort of a telepathic bond with this horse by now. Uh, Well, the horse's name is Brightwind. It's not clear whether she names it or it already had that name. But uh, yeah, she she feels very close to it immediately, and Mist figures, well, okay, if the horse likes you, you should probably come with me, and takes her to a hall of other Pegasus-riding warrior women, without really telling Mirage what's going on. And Mirage obviously isn't super familiar with Norse mythology, or she would immediately recognize these ladies as Valkyries. Right. Now, the Valkyries in Norse mythology are known as the Choosers of the Dead, and they're these women that ride around on horses in the sky after battles and uh, sort of lift up the valiant dead to go to Valhalla as uh, part of Odin's future army of awesome ghost warriors. And what they do in the meantime while they're preparing for Ragnarok is drink all night and then all day battle and kill each other and then come back and sort of reassemble their dismembered pieces and go and drink again. Did we mention that Norse mythology is metal as hell? Because it totally is. I think the causal relationship is more the other way. Oh, that's true. Metal is Norse mythology as hell. So uh, Mirage overhears the warriors talking about how she's been chosen and the bond must be sealed in blood. And so she says, screw this and runs away with Brightwind. Now, around this time is where the storylines start converging, because a lot of the characters are starting to meet up. Karma finally, after months, finds her way out of the desert. 
the child she was traveling with has disappeared, but there's this bit of string tied around her finger that she doesn't remember from before. Right, and uh, this is happening as she meets up with Cypher and Warlock, who have been, after escaping, going around looking for the other new mutants. Ileana shows up at that point, and... Well, the Dark Child, the who dark is separate child, from Ileana. Yes, shows up at this point and says, you didn't even recognize? Yeah, that string, that's the symbol of the Norns, the three fates. Basically, it looks like the fates tried to do you a solid by giving you this task to complete to kind of regain your own agency. Rock on. Go Norns. Yeah, the Norns are pretty rad. At this point, you know, Ileana's trying to take them, the Dark Child, rather. So Warlock and Doug turn into this battle form where Warlock turns into armor surrounding Doug. And Sam and Amara show up, who have been also searching for their friends. Danny shows up on Brightwind. So, you know, the gang's all here, pretty much. Well, Sam and Amara are also transporting Storm's new hammer. That's right, yes. To the castle, because it has to be kept molten until it arrives, and Amara can do that with her powers. Yeah, so there's this molten metal hammer inside a big rock that they're transporting. And so, yeah, everybody's in the same place now. Rain and Sunspot, of course, have been turned into demon warriors by the Dark Child already. Oh, and we should say Sam has been kitted out with some serious badass battle gear by the dwarves, who are makers of such things. So he's got this impenetrable armor, and he's got a sword that can cut through anything that's not alive, anything not living. And, you know, these type of things are very much Norse magical weapons and armor. The next thing we see are the Dark Child and her Night Gods returning to the Enchantress Triumphant with everybody imprisoned. Well, quote-unquote triumphant. Yeah, because as soon as they show up, the New Mutants all break out of the armor and beat the hell out of uh, the Enchantress's trolls. Because Karma has possessed the split-off Dark Child. So they capture the Enchantress... It's kind of rad. What's a little creepier, though, is that as as this happens, they take the Enchantress to Limbo, and Liliana drops her off with Sim and says, you know, don't physically damage her, otherwise use your imagination. Which is kind of, like, creepy and not okay, which is in character for Liliana, certainly. Even the non-Dark Child Liliana, but... To be fair, the Enchantress has been using her as a tool to attack and take down her friends, and essentially brutally, physically, and psychically torturing her for months at this point. She's probably not at her most judicious right now. I guess that's that's entirely reasonable. But yeah, they talk about what to do. Like, should we get out of here? Should we call the X-Men? And all the new mutants, uh, almost all of them, say basically, let's stay here, you know, and uh, find Aurora. We need to free her. Um, but it's also clear that a lot of them have other reasons they want to be there. Like, Rain is still looking for her wolf prince. Uh, Danny doesn't want to leave Brightwind. Bobby wants to get all the ladies. Yes, and Karma's curious about what was up with the Norns. Magma's still stuck in her fairy form. So, yeah, they teleport away as um, Sim has parts over his head while he's holding the shackled Enchantress again. Mm. Yeah, they basically, that that's how the first part of the story ends, with them going off to rescue Storm. From there, we go to Uncanny X-Men Annual number 9. And this is just a direct part to you. Like, if you just jumped into this part of the story, you'd kind of have no idea what was going on. And Art Adams is the penciler, and there's another recognizable name that shows up in the art credits, and it's going to start showing up more and more around this time, um, usually as an inker, and that is Mike Mignola. Yeah, now Mike Mignola, you may know, is the creator of Hellboy and one of the most distinctive artists out there. At this point, he's very much doing Marvel house style, especially when he's inking. Well, he's inking, so he's unrecognizable as an inker, at least here. So, yeah, this uh, second part starts as the X-Men are woken up by a screaming Kitty Pride, who apparently had a vision from her sort of semi-psychic link with magic with Ilyana Rasputin of, you know, Ilyana as the Dark Child, Aurora as this weird thunder god. She's like, what the hell? What's going on? The X-Men figure out that this means serious trouble. You know, Rachel Summers has powered up significantly since getting the Phoenix Force. She has also finally ditched her aerobics wear 
and made a costume. And this costume has the Phoenix sigil from the old Phoenix Dark Phoenix days very clearly incorporated. This is, I've talked about this one before because it's the one that has the Phoenix actually worked into the neckline of the costume. Mm -hmm. And the X-Men are just floored. And the ones who know who she is and what her origin is are like, oh my god, that's in really poor taste. And Cyclops is just kind of generally horrified since he doesn't actually know what her origins are or that she's gotten a hold of the Phoenix Force. But finally they're like, yeah... That's awkward. Let's, I guess, just not really talk about it. Right. So they decide, well, we have to go to Asgard and, um, you know, make sure everything is okay or make it okay if it isn't. So how are we going to get there? And Cyclops says, I've got a plan. I'll use this satchel full of lightning bolts. Wait, what? So back in Uncanny X-Men Annual number three, which we did not cover because I don't think it's a terribly exciting story, they met this dude named Archon who'd been around for a while. He's this sort of like barbarian warrior prince from another planet. And I should say, if you've watched the original animated series, there's, I think, a two-part are based directly on this. Uh, Yep, and he's also going to be the main character of the upcoming Secret Wars series Weird World. Good. But as the story resolved, he ended up gifting to the X-Men this bunch of lightning bolts that they could use to travel through dimensions. They're all different colors, and you combine them in different ways to travel to different dimensions, I guess? Now, in the meantime, we then cut to something that's kind of weird, which is a training montage with Storm and the New Mutants, as if the last issue, New Mutant Special Edition, had not happened. You know, Magma is using her powers to build a simulacrum of a fairy girl. The characters are talking about how their fears and desires and all of the things they want. And someone finally points out these things could all be fixed in Asgard. And then we realize eventually that Samara dreaming. And she wakes up in even more advanced version of her fairy elf form. Sam's got much longer hair. It's actually kind of a mullet. And it's pretty clear some time has passed. And they've just been sort of laying low trying to figure out what to do. And I was mistaken. I thought that the stuff with the molten Uro metal happened in the New Mutant special. And it actually happens in the X-Men annual. Right. And this is also where Sam gets that invulnerable armor and can't cut the living sword. So they kind of get ready to go and deliver this molten hammer to Loki, who's going to give it to Storm at this big ceremony in Asgard. And, you know, they're hoping to take him out as this is all happening. So the X-Men arrive just in time to save the Wolf Prince, Rain's erstwhile gentleman friend, from a group of trolls who are going after him. Hela appears, is surprised that she gets trolls instead of a wolf, and recognizes Rachel, or at least recognizes an aspect of Rachel. Right. She mentions that she's the successor to a being that gave her more souls than anybody else ever had, clearly referring to Dark Phoenix. And Rachel is not pleased at Hela sort of slandering Jean this way. I mean, Jean did wipe out a civilized planet. She did, in fact, commit genocide. Uh, that she did. So she confronts Hela and they part ways. The next thing that happens with the X-Men is that they decide, like, okay, we need to split up. Um, Half of us, let's stay with the Wolf Prince here and make sure he's okay. The other half, let's go find Rain. So Wolverine, Shadowcat, and Phoenix go to find Rain. And as they're going, Kitty's sort of looking at Rachel and... Yeah, and she says, we don't dare talk openly to her because she hasn't told Cyclops who she really is, which is so dumb and so sad, and she won't use size speech. She's the loneliest person I know, and she seems to want it that way. In that, she's so much like her dad... He heard Hela. He must know who Ray is, but he hasn't said a word. And I like how much it's clearly tearing the other characters apart to not tell Cyclops what's up. And it's not clear for a very long time how much he has or hasn't figured out. At some point near the end of this issue, he calls her Phoenix. 
that's the only indication we ever really see from him that he's figuring out what's going on. So in the meantime, the new mutants are still doing their thing. The ones that are free are planning a strategy, trying to figure out what's going on. And Ilyana, even though she's been freed, is being pretty terrible. Well, she's been studying the Enchantress's spellbook. She's been trying to get a better grasp on Asgardian magic. And as she's been learning those spells, she's been becoming more and more like the Enchantress. And so they're trying to get everybody gathered. So like Danny goes to fetch Roberto from the tavern where he's been hanging out, you know, being loved and adored. And what we start to see is people responding to Danny with absolute terror. And she has no idea why, and Roberto has no idea why. And as soon as uh, she heads to meet everybody else, Warlock also freaks out. Yeah, none of the other new mutants have, but Warlock sees her and immediately freaks. So as this happens, he runs away with Doug. They're trying to get the team together, and it's really it's really just not working. But the X-Men who stayed with the Wolf Prince, they do find Rain. And there is more nuzzling, this time with tiny hearts. And Rain, again, she's just so freaked out. Lord, forgive me. What was I doing? When I saw my prince, I could not help myself. I became my wolf self. I acted like an animal but i'm not i'm a girl a human being aren't i well rain you're gonna have to work out those issues later because Ilyana's still being terrible colossus is freaked out they're gonna cast a locator spell on aurora but just then everyone's favorite trickster god loki shows up and zaps everybody in the meantime warlock and doug they've escaped and warlock is once again at death's door he's almost out of energy and doug says can i offer you some of mine or a way to do that without me dying and so they sort of merge into this hybrid form as Warlock kind of overlaps with all of Doug's cells. And this is something that we that will be a very big deal later. Yeah, this is going to become even more important actually after Doug dies. In the meantime, as everyone's trying to coordinate, Wolverine, Kitty, and Rachel, they have found out that Thor is actually elsewhere. He has in fact gone into hell with Baldur the Brave and the Unharrier to free these unfairly taken souls by Hela. Now this is my favorite Thor story ever, and there's not really time to go into it, but it is incredible. Wait, is this the one that leads up to the Executioner's Last Stand? At the Bridge of Gjallarbrú. You need to read that story if you haven't. If you read no other story, look up Gjallarbrú. So yeah, Loki has bound a lot of the X-Men and New Mutants. They've put them near the ensorcelled Ilya saying that her evil's going to corrupt them, saying, you know, hey, I'm not directly harming you, right, right? He then uh, takes the wolf prince and rain and turns them into, like, demon wolves and send them out to capture the other characters. And the X-Men try to fight Loki with this thing where, you know, Rogue gets the powers of a couple, and it just does not work out. Yeah, Loki is a god, and he's in his own domain, and they're very good at what they do, but they're not good enough. Now, the rest of the characters, the, the ones that have not been taken, they're trying to figure out what to do, and they're actually attacked by trolls and a dragon sent by Loki, and Wolverine is bitten by this clearly very poisonous, very venomous dragon. And he spends a good chunk of the rest of the story at the brink of death. But eventually everybody unites, some in prison, some not, in Asgard's Hall of Heroes, which is where Loki's planning to Thorify Storm. But first he's going to stand up and basically do a very slightly paraphrased version of the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. And man, I love Asgardian speeches. Like, that style of overblown, flowery dialogue, like, it's, it's exactly what Thor's about during this era. We few, we happy band of brothers, gathered neath the raven banner of Odin, know full well the ways of courage and honor, nobility and sacrifice. All of us suffered in the war against Surtur, and our fair realm most of all through the loss of its liege lord, my revered father, Odin. But no less valiant than we Aesir were the sons of Midgard who fought by our side. Their forms compared to ours are frail, and their lives are fleeting as the morning dew, yet their glory shall outshine the stars. It is of one such I speak tonight, the best of that breed whose birthright, dominion over winds and rain, making her spiritual kin to my brother, Thor, was cruelly stripped from her. 
She owed nothing to her fellow mortals, and when the Yaller horn sounded, she did not hesitate to come to their aid. You know, Loki's a dick, but he's a really good orator. And so, the free characters are all sort of waiting in the audience, waiting for their moment to strike, and Warlock is disguised as Hagar the Horrible, which I find hilarious. And there's a really great bit of dialogue between Sunspot and Wolverine. And Bobby's take is that they should stay here, they should let this happen, because Asgard at least adulates its heroes, they know a good thing when they see it. And why should they go back to Earth where they're hated and feared? And Wolverine yells at him, and Bobby finally basically pulls a, you're not my real dad. To which Wolverine responds, True, I'm a man doing my job, and you're a boy chasing a fool's dream. Aurora isn't here because she wants it. She was kidnapped, same as you kids. And she no more belongs than you. The difference is you got a choice. I don't know why I even bothered talking. I guess because I thought you were worth the effort. My mistake. It's your life, Sunspot. You're free to make any kind of mess of it if you please. Aurora is who I care about, and who I'm going to the wall for. I can't believe anyone was really surprised when they hooked up. <laughs> with, with history like this, I agree. And so, yeah, the, the moment arrives, and the X-Men attack Loki. But he still has enough time to have Aurora reach into the hammer's enclosure and draw it forth. And Aurora is partly mind-controlled right now. She's convinced that Loki is her friend, and anyone who attacks him must not be, must be themselves mind-controlled, or, or an imposter, and so she just attacks the X-Men. And Wolverine does what Wolverine does, figuring he's dying anyway, and just sort of pulls himself through the bolts of lightning and stuff she's shooting and says, do not trust him, like with his dying breath, basically. Literally dying, because pretty soon, Hela again shows up. And Hela is about to claim his soul, but as it happens, even though she doesn't know it, there is someone there who can challenge her over it. And that is Daniel Moonstar, because she is a Valkyrie, and that's confirmed at this point. Apparently, if a fancy horse likes you enough, you too can gain power of life and death. And so there's a confrontation. Eventually, Hela does teleport away, because at this point, Thor is at her gates in the storyline in his own book. Storm, seeing Wolverine's sacrifice, is like, wait a minute, this clearly is not right, and she ends up throwing the hammer at Loki, who of course catches it and throws it right back at her, because he's the one who designed it. It's tied to him, right? As long as she wields it, she's sort of under his thrall. Pretty much, yeah, she's bound to him. And so they're sort of facing off, and Shadowcat... I just love this part. Shadowcat just basically gets up in his face and yells at him. If you're at the trial of Jean Grey and you remember the scene where Kid Cyclops just goes off at Guardian, it reminds me a lot of this one. Says you, Weasel Face, there are maybe a score of X-Men and New Mutants loose in Asgard. We know the truth, and so do the Valkyries. Either you call it quits right now, you send us home with all curses lifted and no more vendetta, or we scatter. You can't catch us all. Sooner or later, somebody will reach Thor or Baldur or Heimdall or Freya or the Warriors 3 and poof go your precious ambitions to be big boss here, and maybe a whole lot more. Are you threatening me, youngling? You betcha. I love that. Yeah, people who write Shadowcat as just kind of studious and a good kid, I feel like miss so much of the character because she is at this point the kid who never backs down from a fight. And so Loki says, well, you know, you have a good point. Well, fine, I'm going to send you home, but here's the deal. You're going to lose all the magical gifts and transformations and good stuff, and you will have to all leave. Not one of you can stay. You have to go together. That means Storm will lose her powers again. It means that Danny will lose her new flying pony. And Rain will have to leave, who is pretty clearly the love of her young life, the Wolf Prince. Bobby won't be able to stay in you the first place that's really felt right to him. But they decide, you know, this is what we have to do, and well, this will also, like, you know, transform Magma back, for instance, and so that's a good thing. But Loki tries to convince Storm to stay. He says that she's not bound to this, that she can stay on her own. On Midgard, Aurora, thou wilt once more be merely a woman, without the power to fly, to wield lightning, to command the wind and storm. 
the X-Men in the world hold no place for thee. Let them go. Stay, Storm. Be a goddess. Rule Asgard by my side. But know that shouldst thou refuse me, we are quits. I shall cast thee from my heart, as I do thy comrades from my realm, never to return. And so Storm basically says nope and zaps the uh, hammer with the last of her lightning and breaks the enchantment and breaks the bond. And Loki storms off, sends them back, and then, yeah, sighs and pines as villains do after Storm. Blessed branches of Yggdrasil, what a woman. It would almost be worth losing the throne to win her to my side. Now, I feel like now that Kitty Pride has pretty much settled into a costume, although her appearance still changes all the time, like she changes eye color like four times just in this issue. We need a few more rules thrown in, and I feel like obviously one of them should be every time a villain falls for Storm. Take a drink. So, yeah, the heroes are all sent home with much of what happened undone, although not their memory erased. I hate that trope. Well, and Danny gets to keep Brightwind because the Valkyries show up and they're like, she, she can keep him at school. Yeah, so Brightwind, in fact, goes back to Earth, this, like, magic Valkyrie horse. Yeah, and- Danny is now still a Valkyrie. Exactly. So that's a thing. And uh, with that, it pretty much wraps up. Loki makes a little figurine magically of Storm to remember her by. It spe- looks like he really specifically makes a really nice one-sixth scale action figure <laughs> of her in her, her metal album cover gear, and it's kind of creepy. And that is the Asgardian Wars. All sorts of crazy stuff has happened. There are a number of lasting consequences, but really, I just like this story for the story itself. I love how many twists and turns it takes, how many different kinds of monsters and realms we get to see. We get to see these characters interact with stuff that's just so far outside their usual wheelhouse, and we get to see how they react. It's really great character work for that reason. It's a two-parter that manages to juggle 17 main characters and not really lose track of any of them. The way you're talking about this reminds me a lot And I was thinking about this as I was reading it of a question that I've heard a lot over the years, which is how do I get my girlfriend, boyfriend, non-binary romantic partner, best friend, parents, family, pets, etc. into comics? That got me thinking about you and me because I'd read some comics. I thought comics were cool when we got together, but I wasn't really a comics fan. There was nothing I followed really seriously. If I had seen this stuff in a store, this would not be a book that I would have picked up. It's not a book I would have thought to get. What got me interested in it was the way you talked about it. You know, I knew that you knew what I liked to read. I knew what you liked to read. You didn't say, oh my god, how can you not have read this? What is wrong with this? Instead, you told me about how much you liked it and why you liked it. And how much you cared about it, how contagious that enthusiasm was, was what got me to actually, you know, crack open that first Thor collection you lent me. This is one of the series that, for me at least, I think of as kind of career-defining because it's one of the series that got me thinking really hard about comics, storytelling as a craft. And so this book and the way, the way you've talked about, you know, as Guardian Wars is kind of always my answer to that question. Explain to them why you love it. Don't tell them why they should read it. Tell them why you do. Someone who likes you and cares about you is probably going to want to share something that's that important to you. Well, thanks. That's, that's really sweet, and I think also a very good point. If we can let our enthusiasm and love for this stuff, and, you know, not certainly unabashed love, there's some really not okay stuff here and there, but if we can let that enthusiasm open people up to stuff they wouldn't have seen before, stuff they wouldn't have enjoyed before, then I think we're successful. That's what we want to do. Yeah, to not treat looking at material critically as antithetical to looking at it affectionately. Totally. In the meantime, you guys have some questions. Okay, so Lateo asks on Tumblr, We know there are non-humans with active X genes. 
Are there any Asgardians who are mutants? You know, strangely enough, I don't think so. In all of my research and in all of my reading, I was not able to find any. Which is weird because you've got mutant Atlanteans, Eternals, animals, viruses, aliens, even robots. But I don't think any Asgardians. Now, this could be because they're somehow unique. I mean, they're cyclically reborn gods or maybe extra-dimensional beings. Like, there aren't a lot of other beings like them. Or maybe there actually are Asgardian mutants, but their powers are just considered to be magical in nature or inherent to the type of god they are, because, you know, gods have their own domains, sort of. And honestly, that might be okay. I mean, I don't know if the mutant metaphor would make sense in the Asgardian context, you know? And I think mutants at a concept are at their, are their most interesting when they can serve as kind of a rough stand-in for human minorities. I don't think that would work nearly as well in Asgard. Okay, so Firehawk32 asks on Tumblr, Listening to you talk about Storm as a con artist last episode got me thinking, what's your ideal X-Men leverage team? Oh, man. So I spent most of the last um, maybe like 16 hours getting back to Portland from Virginia, which involved three flights and a six-hour layover in Denver, which was singularly hellish. And I spent a lot of this time thinking about this question because I love leverage so much. It is one of my very favorite shows and... This is important, and I have a number of answers. So I'm going to go through and explain why. I put together two teams. And the first one, this is if I'm assembling a team out of X-Men to perform similar heists to the leverage ones. So I looked at skill sets. So going in credits order, Hitter is obviously going to be Wolverine. Christian Kane is my ideal person to take over for Hugh Jackman if he ever quits the franchise based on Elliot and Leverage. So that's kind of a natural fit. Hacker, so here's the thing. Hardison's skill set is not something that one person can have because he's not just a hacker. He's a museum quality forger. He's incredibly good at, at a number of things and he's got hobbies. So for that, I actually decided there would be a team. So that's going to be Shadowcat and Doug and occasionally Forge working together. Grifter, Mystique. There are a couple options, but I think she's the best and I think she's going to be the one best suited to that kind of heist. The Thief, You've got a couple people who are qualified. For me, that's going to come down to probably either Gambit or Phantomel. Probably in terms of a team like this, Phantomel is going to be a better option just because she has less prior politics attached. If you've got Gambit working for you, he's eventually going to get too showy, or the Assassin's Guild is eventually going to show up for some, like, neon fights. So finally, the brains. I looked at a bunch of options and had trouble nailing someone down because, first of all, I don't, I don't like Nate at all. I think he's really boring. And he's got a really distinct mix of being really smart, really good strategist, and completely incapable of separating personal and professional stuff. Finally, and even named appropriately, I realized, obviously the Nate of this team, the, the Brains, is going to be Cable. Because he is smart enough, he's strategic enough, and he's hubristic enough. Because the thing with Nate is he's got to be able to do everyone's job, but not as well as they can, but think that he can do it better. The other way I put it together was with character analogs instead of skill analogs. So in this, Wolverine is still Christian Kane. Hardison, I'm actually going to say, is still Kitty and Doug because between the two of them, they cover most of those bases. Emma for Sophie. Similar character arc, a lot of similar characteristics. For Parker, I'm going to go with Magic. She's got a similarly discordant relationship with human society as a result of a similarly mono-focused and fucked up childhood. I'm still having a hell of a time with Nate. I keep on coming back to either Cable or Weirdly Banshee. Uh, yeah, I can totally see that, actually. Physical resemblance there, too, to a degree. So, and I will say, as a bonus, um, my sterling in this is Quentin Quire. <laughs> nice. So there you go. There's a very, very thorough answer to your question, Firehawk32. I will happily discuss this more online. I will discuss Leverage forever. <laughs> it's such a good show. There are rumors about a movie. 
anyway, we have some Patreon supporters to thank. Um, being a Patreon supporter at certain levels gets you uh, thank yous on air in uh, your choice of different types of Explain the X-Men voices. So let's start out with the angry narrator. Would you abandon your earthly responsibilities, Chandramain? Would you remain here, lauded, lazy? Is that the choice of a hero? And you, DARPA, will you walk away from a world whose hatred and fear have tempered you like a weapon? Abandon your peers, abandon those without your resources. Of course, I trust you to do what you think is right. Meanwhile, Loki's will shall be done. It should be but a trifle for Amora the Enchantress to capture those who have defied him. Genevieve Pakan Saikali's vaunted strength shall avail her not, as it is sapped away by the biting cold of Jotunheim, and the darkness of Niflheim itself shall crush the will of even one such as Adam Kennedy. I know not why Loki wishes you dead, children, but the deed shall not be without its share of satisfaction. Now then, to spin a spell most wicked. Man, you are so much better at these than I am this week. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website, rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, and lots of other stuff, including evolution recaps, which are going to start up again this week. This podcast is completely listener-supported. It's made possible by all of our Patreon supporters, like the four we mentioned above. Guys, you are rad. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. Meanwhile, we will be back next week with Mullets, Mojo, and Ricochet Rita. As we jump into the first appearance miniseries of my favorite X-Man, Longshot. Longshot. <laughs>